Welcome to episode 191. As wartime realities unfold, supporting clients in traumatic shock, featuring Dr. David Grand, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Dr. David Grand. One of his specializations is working with and understanding trauma shock, and that's why I've asked him to join us here today as we watch the news stories unfold about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. I know so many of us are feeling overwhelmed and lost and not necessarily knowing how we help even with our clients on our couches. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Grand. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and also tell us about how you came to be an expert in the field of trauma. I'm the discoverer and developer of brain spotting, which is a, uh, a very comprehensive uh, not just a psychotherapy, but a heal- healing modality. And um, I'm still a psychotherapist. I'm still in private practice. So whatever I teach uh, is what I'm still doing. Uh, brain spotting is, is international. It is a, uh, a brain body aware modality that makes use of both the relationship, which is the core of healing, and also um, the visual processes where people look spontaneously and where there are visual reflexes and visual orienting that happens for people when they get activated. Let's start with a conversation about activation. Mm-hmm. Goodness knows that in the recent past, we have been flooded with disturbing images, sound bites many of us having a different relationship to what's going on in the news cycle. Can you start by doing uh, limbic activation 101, if you will, to remind us what we clinicians are experiencing and what our clients may be experiencing in the face of such devastating news? Well, unfortunately, uh, it's the devastating news is, is not new. We've been following uh, uh, Ukraine. And for those of us who follow what's going on in the world, there's devastating things happening, you know, all, all, all over the place. So, uh, but uh, our limbic system, you know, uh, is what picks up on, among other things, potential threat and its mammalian and, it, and its origins. And it tells us if threat is in any way in our close environment and even more so if it's encroaching and and this is really how we survive so uh as soon as it picks up something we immediately immediately go into a state of vigilance and uh all the senses are heightened all the body uh the body processes that are involved with flight or fight uh are activated um the thinking brain, the neocortex, uh, starts to go offline, you know, as the limbic system takes over. Uh, and what what happens in ideal situations is is the, is is we recognize that what we thought was a threat was not a threat. The sound that we heard in our living room in the middle of the night was a book falling out of the bookcase instead of uh, an intruder be- being in there. When that happens. The limbic system just comes down and goes to baseline. But if there is true threat, we are, our brains and our bodies are ready to respond. Uh, The common phrase is fight or flight, but it's really a, a misnomer because it's flight or fight. The first response to, to threat for our humans and mammals is to create distance or space from the threat. And only if we can't escape the, the threat do we go into, into fight mode. So uh, this is our, our natural limbic response to threat. And when the threat is over, hopefully if we survive intact, then again, the limbic system calms down. The, the problem with this is that 
our nervous system, which is infinitely complex, one to four quadrillion synaptic connections, which is a billion multiplied by a million and maybe multiplied by four, um, is the most complex processing mechanism known in the universe. But, but when it gets overwhelmed, when something traumatic happens, the processing breaks down and that leaves parts of that traumatic experience unprocessed in the brain, which uh, lays the groundwork for what we call PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, as far as limbic activation goes, um, uh, human beings are not as efficient as animals. Animals respond and then it's over. But, but for humans, we tend to carry it with us. So whatever traumas we've experienced in the past that have not been fully processed or metabolized, we're vulnerable to having them reactivated. That's what we call getting triggered. You hear about trigger alerts and things like that. Um, and exposure is, is what does it. When, when you're watching television and you see horrible scenes, which if you go back decades, they didn't show things like, like this on television. Or if you see survivors whose, whose relatives have been murdered or kidnapped or something, just by watching it, our limbic system gets activated. But that doesn't mean that we know that our limbic system is activated because most of it is on an unconscious or what I call a subcortical sub level. It's below the neocortex. So, um, and the more you watch it, the more you become desensitized on a superficial level, but that's only because you're, you're getting so cumulatively activated underneath. You mentioned therapists. Um, um, I don't know any therapist who doesn't have people who come to them who are carrying trauma. Even if they're not trauma-informed, even if they don't know it, uh, everybody who goes to a therapist, who goes to the trouble of going to a therapist, is carrying some traumatic history, some traumatic issues. And it gets communicated to us. Our limbic system picks it up from their limbic system, and our limbic system gets activated and part of our empathy or our social engagement system is that we start to feel some sense of what they feel or at least what, what our system assumes it to be. And for therapists, we get the session after session and, and it's cumulative. But in times when things are right at our front door, I mean, that's when it goes beyond that. And and that's when we have to be even more aware of what's going on inside of ourselves. Thank you, David. Prior to recording today, you and I had talked about the transgenerational trauma phenomenon that's unfolding. We all have people we know who are affected personally by what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza. As you mentioned, there have been so many things in the news cycle in the last number of years that are traumatic to behold. How do our past experiences affect how we process this information? Well, it actually can affect how we don't process this situation. That's the bigger problem. Uh, part of trauma and carrying trauma is that it prevents us from processing the experiences we have in the present. Okay, That's because the unprocessed trauma that's in the brain is actually holding the, the experiences and the memories from the time of the trauma, which might be a week ago or a year ago, or it might be 20 years ago. But, but to whatever degree we have networks of unprocessed trauma going all the way back to early development, it makes us hard, harder for us to, to process the traumas that we experience in the present. And that's part of how we sort of repeat and recycle uh, you know, traumatic experiences internally by what we feel and externally by what we, how we act and what, what we do. For many people, when we have an outward emotional reaction, we may label that as good or bad. 
oh, I'm crying, that means I'm expressing it or I'm processing it, or depending on how a society or a culture views that crying, it could be a bad thing. When it comes to processing these types of events and images, is there an ideal response? Or is it really just set by what's conditioned for that person in their body? Uh, it's, it's individual, okay? People, you know, people respond differently to different things uh, just because they have different personalities and different, you know, uh, psychophysiological makeups and so on. You mentioned crying. You know, crying is generally a healthy response unless it becomes something that takes over and, and just doesn't stop, which is more unusual because crying is associated to grieving and grieving is associated to processing trauma which is going through what we lost and how it affected us. And, you know, the like the stages of grief is, is an example of that. But crying helps us to, to come out on the other end. Um, emotions like rage, you know, anger that comes up and is felt and expressed is, is another release, you know, and helps us to move ahead. But rage, if you're trapped in, in an emotion like rage, um, uh, um, it's actually not processing, you know. It tends to, to be a manifestation of be, being of the fight response, being stuck in the fight response, you know, which is meant to recede af after we come out of, of the experience. But um, I want to uh, just add in uh, two, two neurological concepts and one is hyperarousal, and the other is hypoarousal. Now, hyperarousal is just you know anxiety, panic, you know rage, um, um, things uh, you know uh, being caught in ob obsessions that you know get you really jacked up in your body. Hypoarousal is shutdown, depression, dissociation, and so on. Hypoarousal is just the flip flip side of hyperarousal. So when you were asking about the emotional response, if the response is really muted or numbed out or non-existent, okay, it means that, that the person is hype, having a hypoarousal response and the intensity underneath that is just as much as the intensity of the hyperarousal. So um, to, to look, go back to your question about what is a healthy way to respond, which is complex and individual, it's to not be trapped in hyperarousal or not be trapped in hypoarousal. The autonomic nervous system, which is in the, the brainstem, goes from sympathetic activation to parasympathetic activation to sympathetic, parasympathetic. And it's a natural, that, you know, that's a natural sine wave, okay? which means that we're getting activated enough, but not too activated. And then we're, we're, we're getting sort of calm, but not, too, dro not dropping too low. And if you stay with the two, you're in, you know, but if it's a natural flow between the two, you're in a state of coherence, okay? Which means that you're there and you're reactive, but you're not overly reactive or not un underly reactive. Knowing that in times like these, as you mentioned, we see things on the television, on social media that we wouldn't have been exposed to even a number of dec decades ago. How does that impact our experience of traumatic shock to just be inundated with this imagery? Well, you and I know you know the, the term doom scrolling, okay? Well, there's doom scrolling and there's doom viewing, okay? And what happens is, is there's almost an addictive quality to it that you just keep watching and watching or, you know, uh, going on your Instagram account and just seeing horrible, horrible things. And they keep on coming up and it's like, I'll just see one more. I'll just see one. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's endless. So um, uh, I, very personally, there's only so much that I let myself see on television or the cable news outlets, and there's only so much I let myself see online. And uh, 
Um, I don't feel like I'm not being empathetic if I don't let myself watch these horrible things or see these tragic interviews or just, you know, uh, read the posts that, that come up. Uh, uh, and, and I, I, you know, I think our society inundates us, you know, algorithms are meant to get our attention, to keep going and keep going. And then to go to the advertisements that they want us to go to. And it's, uh, it's pretty lethal and, uh, uh, pretty devious the way that, that we're pulled into this. And I think we need to give ourselves breaks all the time. In fact, I think we need to give ourselves more breaks than we do give ourselves the exposure because nothing good comes out of it. I appreciate that reminder. I think sometimes, particularly as helpers, we may feel extra pressure to be up on everything that's happening. And that pressure has that dark side because it doesn't give us an opportunity to be calm and to come out of activation. Mm -hmm. Well, we have th three major cable news outlets of different political stripes. And literally, a lot of people just sit and they watch hour after hour after hour. And they're just giving like new twists on, on the story that was out the hour before. So that's not looking for information. You know, that's, that's, you know, um, that's getting caught in doom viewing, especially when things are, are, are bad. So you can, we, you can check in here and check in there and get, get all the information that you need. Why do some folks struggle with that doom scrolling? Well, you know what? Uh, social media is like a drug pusher. That's what the algorithms are about. That's, you know, people who are vulnerable to these things, they pick, you know, they, they pick up on it and they send you more and more of this stuff. So, so uh, you know, what do you do when you realize that a drug pusher has moved into your neighborhood? You know, well, if you can't get them out, you, you just don't go, go near them and let anybody go near them. Um, uh, it's, it's very much a sign of sign of the times, you know, and um, social media has taken over now with, with artificial intelligence. They know how to do it a hundred times better. Um, and you have to just, you know, uh, if not go off the grid, you know, just, just really give yourself doses, but be able to step in and pull yourself out. We now have the phenomenon of f FOMO that everybody know means fear of missing out. This is part of what's going on with the inundation of, of information. You know, you're afraid if you're not, you know, tapped into it, uh, that you're going to miss out on something. So, so, so again, that's, that's what is played into. Um, I have some clients and I tell them direct, I'm not directed to my clients. You know, I really sit with them and help them to process whatever comes out from them. But I have some clients who, who just come in and they're, they're a wreck because they've just been watching one thing after the other, especially, you know, in the last week. And I get pretty directive and I say, you know what, whatever help you get here is being undermined by, by what you're doing with that. And then, you know, we explore the dynamics of, why they get caught up in it, but but sometimes you just have to say uh, if something is damaging to you, you have to keep away from it. Even that, I think, may sometimes seem so simple, but in times like this, sometimes I think we want to wrap ourselves in information or interpretation to try to bumper the traumatic experience, but it sounds like the reality is that it's actually making it more traumatic for our nervous systems. Mm -hmm. It used to be that there was facts and then there were opinions, you know, and, and you could kind of know the difference, or, but you still had to look for the facts. Now we have facts, opinions, and misinformation. And with, with misinformation out there and, and being piped into the, the main line of, of our society, you don't even know what's what's accurate and what's not, mm -hmm. and and the purpose of mi 
misinformation is manipulation, you know? And uh, so you can't even know necessarily what's that. What I do for myself and what I teach those near and dear to me and what I teach my clients is to search for the facts. And most of the information you get is opinion. There's very little information you get that's fact. And it's what you, you used to do as a uh, journalist or a researcher. You look at different outlets, you know, you look at different things to see what is there across the board. And that's where you begin to have a sense of what the facts are. But the facts are few and far between and, and more elusive now than ever. When we're in times like these, where we have so many images coming across our eyes, where this is a topic of conversation at the grocery store checkout line and with our loved ones, do we stay in a constant state of limbic activation? Is that healthy? Like, Tell me more about how that happens for us. And also, what are the consequences of extended limbic activation when we're just in this constant state? It's bad for the emotions, it's bad for the brain, it's bad for the body, and it's bad for the soul, period, end quote. Uh, by the way, people don't aren't online that much anymore with getting things delivered by Amazon, you know, especially, you know, uh, uh, you know, non-perishable items. But even with that, people get that, get that delivered as well. So, so we don't even have that, that many encounters with each other the way, the way that we used to. And COVID really changed that, you know, when we had social distancing and, and we've maintained a high level of that social distancing as, as a consequence. I want to just give a piece on ocular uh, neurology, okay, when you talk about what we see, okay. The eyes in utero grow out of the brain. The eyes are really an extension of the brain. The, op, the, the retina and the optic nerve nerves are made out, are out of neuronal tissue. Literally, the, the eyes are part of the brain. So when the information comes in and it hits the retina, it's not just getting transmitted, it's getting processed. So what we see is incredibly powerful for what we feel. 50% of the brain is devoted to vision. These are all things that once you realize it, what we are exposed to visually is incredibly uh, influential in what we feel on all levels. The eyes are absolutely unique in terms of what we experience and how we process information. And with brain spotting, we make use of where you look. We say where you look affects how you feel. And um, there are so many visual cues that we can pick up on when a person is with us and they're talking about whatever is bothering them or what their traumas are that give us direct access. We locate those eye positions and we have them hold fixate on either a pointer or an object in, in, in the space or in the room that the, the processing that goes on is so much deeper uh, so much more efficient, and um, it gets to the, the unprocessed trauma incredibly directly. So it sounds like leaning in to the visual is one of the tools that you recommend as part of, I don't want to say managing, but processing traumatic experiences. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I'll tell you tell you some experience I had. Uh, again, we have three ways of finding relevant eye positions in brain spotting. One is when you move a pointer slowly across and you see powerful reflexes in the eyes. You stop there, you have the person just look at that pointer and start to process. Because the reflexes not only go to the brainstem, they go to the spine. That's how, how deep we are accessing when you see visual reflexes. The other is where you look to see where a person feels that activation in their body the most. First, first to the uh, to the left, then in the middle, then to the right, and then up uh, above and below eye level. And literally, you'll find a spot where the person just feels it the most, an eye position that really gives you access. 
But the other one that we were talking about is, is that, and I've been watching you and you can watch me as we're talking here. You've been looking over here a lot or over here a lot. If you watch me, I'm looking at certain places. You know, a, a, a poker player would call that a tell. But, but for us, we call it a gaze spot in brain spotting. And I want to circle back to what you're saying. Um, I did a lot of work up in Newtown and Sandy Hook, Connecticut uh, after the school shooting, and I was there for, for years. I'd go up once a month and, and do a weekend up there. And um, I'd always bring my pointer with me. A pointer is something that all brain spotting therapists use. And I, you know, I, I never like to impose anything, but I, I, it's, it's a very fine-tuned way of finding trauma. And I'd have the pointer in my hand. I'd ask the person there, when was the first time, the first moment you heard about the, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary? And 100%, they would not look in the same position. They would go and immediately snap off and look in, some, in a position. Okay, And I never got to use the pointer because these gay spots, these spontaneous you know, uh, movement of eyes in a certain direction was so powerful that I would just, just keep looking there, notice what you're feeling in your body, notice what comes up, what comes next, you know, to have them go into a state of focused mindfulness processing. And you'd see they process from the first moment to the first hour to the first day to the first week of, of what happened for them. They went into this deep sequential processing because traumatic events, especially these incredibly powerful ones, are registered in the brain sequentially. What happened right at that moment? What happened next? What happened next? With um, firefighters and, and uh, uh, police officers that I worked with after 9-11, when we did this, you know, it, it started at 8.30 something, and they'd be processing off of a spot and then I'd say, well, we're processing for like five minutes. I say, where are you at now? Oh, it's 1041, you know. And then I asked them, that, you know, because um, emergency workers uh, really keep their eye on the clock. They even develop an inner clock. So you can see how sequential it is. But my point is that um, one of the things that happens for people who are in trauma shock is that their eyes will just go in a certain direction. It may float or drift there, or it may snap there. And once they're on that spot, it's because something about that eye position is giving access to the, the trauma shock that they're in. And when they process it, they very gradually come out of it. But of course, if a person has a strong trauma history, especially developmental trauma history from childhood and early on, um, they will tend to take longer to process traumas, you know, more recent traumas, um, because underneath the recent trauma is the trauma network going all the way back to when they were six months or or even earlier. But um, uh, the eyes give so much information, but it's so natural and so spontaneous that if you're not a brain spotting therapist, you don't even notice it when it happens right in front of you. And you're saying that for clinicians listening who are not necessarily trained in brain spotting, when we see a client do that stare off into space, that's an indication that we're on a topic or near a topic that has particular traumatic significance and linkage to other experiences. Yeah. And, and it's not when we see it. We see it every session. Remember, people come to therapists not because they like to hang out. People co come because they're suffering and they're not able to get past the suffering or they're inhibited from doing and being who they want to be and they're not able to get past that. So they come in a state of, of activation. Their neurobiology is organized around uh, the, the suffering and the pain and the inhibition. So when they come in, they start talking about it. For every therapist in every office in the United States and around the world, it happens every session. The eyes will go towards certain spots. And for anybody who's listening to this, 
if you never come to a brain spotting training, if you never get my book or go on my website, whatever it is, I'm giving you information now that is very valuable and I want you to take seriously and I want you to observe because all you have to do is notice it, encourage the person to keep looking there and just let them process off of that. Even for 60 seconds or for five minutes, something will happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. In these early days of traumatic news cycles, many folks feel numb, in shock. Can you talk a little bit more about what trauma shock is and how clinicians can recognize it, not just in our clients, but also in ourselves? Trauma shock happens when the nervous system gets overwhelmed and stops functioning, doesn't stop functioning completely, but it stops functioning the way functioning the way it usually does. Okay. Um, uh, and trauma shock usually goes along with um, dissociation. Okay. Not feeling what we're feeling, not being aware of certain things and not knowing. One of the things about about trauma shock is that you don't know you're in trauma shock, you know? Uh, if you knew you were in it, then you, you'd be more aware of it. You could do certain things about it. Um, uh, but basically, uh, there's a subtle detachment from reality, not just from external reality, but from internal reality. There's a bit of, of going around on autopilot, you know? Um, and uh, with breaks where all of a sudden like the intensity of what you're carrying or what you've been exposed to comes through and it might be just for a second or two or 10 seconds or a minute and then the trauma shock takes back over because remember underneath that shock is the intensity is the powerful intensity but the system is so overwhelmed it can't process it so it goes down it goes into kind of a, a, a shutdown mode and this, and it, and it goes in stages, you know. Now, if we talk about Israel and Palestine, um, the situation there is still ongoing, it's still unfolding. It's not like the trauma is over, now you're in the aftermath. Okay, Israel, Israeli troops are massed on the Gaza border. You know, Gazans, uh, citizens have been, you know, directed to, uh, to evacuate. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we know that war is imminent. And the statement, war is hell, is an understatement, you know, for everybody involved. So, so you can't come out of trauma shock when, when, you're, when, when you're waiting for, um, you know, a, a mass of different shoes to drop. But when a situation is over, now, if, if a tornado comes through a town, and devastates a town. This is another aspect of trauma. It's usually not one thing and it's over. Okay. All right. So the tornado's gone. It's, you're not going to get killed. You survived. But your house has been destroyed. Your neighborhood's been destroyed. The supermarket you go to is isn't functional anymore. You know. And then the re rebuilding process, if you can rebuild, takes you know. Uh, months and years and so on. So most tra traumatic events, when they're over, you know, it's not it's over and it's that. It's a rolling, you know, trauma. Um, if you're in a terrible car accident, you know, and you survive and you're not hurt, you know, uh, you know, if you walk away from it, I guess you have to deal with, you know, repairing or replacing your car. Uh, uh, and if nobody else was hurt, you know, that's where you go into a trauma shock that you can begin to come out of, you know. But part part of our incredible nervous system is that is that the complexity of it makes it vulnerable, so that the post traumatic stress disorder and it's not a disorder, it's a response pattern. But um, trauma of that nature, uh, we only tend to come out of partially, you know. And some of us come out of a little bit more and some of us come out of a little bit less. So trauma shock, you know, uh, will last longer than we think it will last. Even when you're feeling okay, you know, 
all of a sudden you drive past where you had the accident and you have a whole upsurge of, of anxiety that, you know, seems to come out of nowhere. Um, people after 9-11, okay, I worked with 9-11 survivors, you know, for the first year or two afterwards. There are people who 10 years after came out who had, who were still in trauma shock and hadn't gotten help. There are people 15, 20 years after. So it can be a very, very extended phenomenon. Many clinicians, when we have a client involved in a traumatic incident, feel pressure of like a to-do list. These are all the things that I have to do right now in order to avoid negative symptoms, in order to help develop coping skills, you know, insert clinical phrase here. When it comes to people in traumatic shock, what are the most important points for clinicians to remember? Well, no therapist is smart enough to know what's inside of the one to four quadrillion synaptic connections. So all of those lists we have tell us about ourselves. They don't tell us about our clients. But when it comes to someone who comes in in trauma shock, and, and we recognize we're going to have exposure, you know? Uh, and and just knowing that is important. Monitoring ourselves is important. When a person comes in, what they need is for us to sit with them, to be with them, to be present with them, to receive them as they are. And in that context, to observe what comes out and what comes out, you know, we call it processing. And different therapies have different ways of of helping a client to process, but it's but you can't do something to make a client process. It's more how you receive them and how you sit with them. A somatic therapy would be looking at where the person feels the activation in their body, but they would also be looking to see where the person feels grounded in their body. So they'd help processing through the, where the person feels grounded in the body. In brain spotting, you know, we work with that as well. We work with body resource and body activation. But we also work with eye, eye positions, you know, that, that again, if the person has that natural gaze, you have them be aware of what they're feeling in their body, and you sit with them, you're right in front of them, and then they go into processing mode. And, and when the therapist is attuned and present, and when the therapist follows the client wherever they go, it optimizes the, the client's capacity to process the trauma and begin to come through the stages of coming out of trauma shock. When conceptualizing processing the trauma, the goal is to avoid the pulls of hyperarousal or hypoarousal and get back into that comfortable sine wave where we can move in and out naturally. Well, the goal is to follow the system in such a way that the system finds it its way there. But uh, there, it's very limited how much you can do, especially in the moment, you know. But I will tell you, every research that's looked across the board at the different therapies has found that the relationship is the one thing that helps the healing process. And I'd say it's the most important thing. Um, therapists don't realize the power of their attuned presence. It tends to be quiet. It tends to be deep. But it is much more powerful than how smart we are and how experienced and trained we are and even how intuitive we are, you know? So the baseline in brain spotting is the relationship. And then all that technical fancy stuff that we do with the eyes is on top of the relationship. And, and I, I just want to say this. If you look at the main technical therapies... There are some excellent te technical therapies out there. None of them say that the most important thing is the relationship. And that's because they were not discovered or developed by relational therapists. Now, these are people who are more technical, more brainy in that way. For me, when I was sitting with, with this client, when I discovered brain spotting, all of a sudden her eye got locked in a spot and just she went into intense processing. Um, 
I was a relational therapist, you know, uh, trauma-informed, but a relational therapist. So everything that I developed with brain spotting was based on, on the clinical model, the relational model, okay, which is different from, from the other technical therapies where you get to learn the protocols and the procedures and the techniques and all these things, but you don't, you never hear the relationship comes first, first and last. So, uh, and um, Stephen Porges' work with social engagement, you know, and polyvagal theory and all this uh, fancy uh, uh, neurological stuff, um, uh, social engagement is primal. That's why the relationship is so powerful. And the relationship also goes back to the infant and the caretaker, you know, with eyes looking at each other. This is one of the, another thing about eye position, especially during, during feeding. So, so that's the foundation of the healing, you know. And uh, really good therapists are very human with their clients. They're not sitting there as the expert. There's not a sense of distance or rigidity. They're like right there with who they are. Many times in therapy, a clinician's life experience is different than a client's. Then there are these experiences. We were going through COVID lockdowns alongside our clients. We were receiving news stories alongside clients over the years, and now it's happening again. How does our own limbic activation interfere in or perhaps even improve our ability to attune with our clients when they're in an activated state? You have to be aware of it. And remember, the limbic activation, or I call it limbic countertransference for the therapist, is more unconscious than conscious. So you have to do a, have a lot of self-awareness. You have to do a lot of self-contemplation. You have to, you know, be tuned into yourself when you're with your clients, you know, and notice if you're stepping in too much or if you're getting a little annoyed or if you're drifting off. Those are all signs of... of limbic countertransference. But, um, uh, I mean, when you mentioned the differences, um, this, this is for a whole other podcast, but uh, culture, you know, uh, people have different cultures, whether it's in the United States or from different countries or different uh, uh, races or ethnicities and so on. So, um, there's so much in terms of experience and communication that is different from culture to culture. Now, when it comes to trauma, how people process trauma is also different from culture to culture. You know, in, uh, in the United States and the West, we're very oriented towards the individual. But many people come from cultures where it's more the, the community and where the community processes trauma together. So being, uh, uh, you know, we, we call it, uh, you know, being culturally attuned. Being culturally attuned is just as important as being attuned in any and every other sort of way. I appreciate that reminder about the importance of culture on what we're expecting someone to experience and also what we ourselves are experiencing. In situations like these, I've already seen it come up on social media in professional groups where you have a clinician say, this thing happened with a client and their interpretation about what's unfolding in Israel is entirely different than mine and I XYZ. These topics hit home. And some, for some of us, hit very, very deep. And are, this is very scary to imagine being a clinician holding space for somebody while you also are checking the news to see if your family members are still alive. These are terrifying things to contemplate. Do you have any words of wisdom for clinicians who are going through that right now? Know thyself, you know. We heal by help through being vulnerable with people. 
but we're also uh, we also suffer through being vulnerable as well. Every every therapist has had you know traumas in their lives, and when you have a trauma and that you're going to the office, you know, uh, you know you have to really be on top of it. So their trauma that's going on right now and will continue to go on is in a completely different cultural context. So that's why it's so important to to at least know what you don't know and try to educate yourself so you have some clue about it. Thank you for that. I think for many therapists, when we are sitting with someone who has a different belief system or cultural background than we have, we get potentially intimidated. And I appreciate the reminder to do our homework and go into sessions prepared with what may be coming up for somebody, understanding that it's completely contextual for that person. When you encounter somebody who is likely very traumatized in the moment by what's happening in the news cycle, because of what you know of them, say, in their history, and they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to process it, how do you approach that as a trauma expert and clinician? Brain spotting is a model where you can process things without talking about it. So if a person doesn't want to talk about it, you say, it's okay, I can still help you with this. Most psychotherapies, if a person doesn't want to talk about something, you're very limited as far as what you can do. But if it's, if it's more of a deep brain body therapy where language doesn't even exist, it's a, it's a totally different situation. If a person says, you know, now, if a person is there and they say, I don't want to deal with it, I mean, I don't want to talk with it is one thing. I don't want to deal with it. Well, if somebody was bleeding in the emergency room and they said to, said to the doctor, you know, I don't want to stop bleeding, you know, doctors would not accept that, okay? Because the pers person is there. They've come for the help. Um, uh, with brain spotting, if someone really is in that trauma shock, then the idea of just gently finding an eye position with them, you know, and gaze spotting, that natural gaze is the best way to do it, and to be aware of where they feel grounded in their body at the same time, and to be checking in, you know, people go deep into processing on an eye position. People can go 20, 30 minutes without saying anything because they've dropped down and wh whatever needs to happen is happening. But someone in this kind of trauma shock you're going to step in more frequently. You're going to check in. Okay. You know, just, and, and your voice and the speed and your, you know, your hand and body movements are really crucial. Just tell me what's happening now. All right. Just keep going. You know, or if you don't want to tell me, you don't have to tell me, just give me a sense of where you're at. You know, like every minute, every two minutes. And as it goes on, people can tend to go a little bit longer. Some people, you need to keep checking in with them every minute, you know, um, because they can lose presence, you know, in that state of trauma shock, especially if they have, you know, strong developmental trauma from childhood. You touched upon some of the historical context of what's unfolding for our listeners who may find themselves working with clients who have different belief systems, I want to encourage you to take a listen to our episode featuring Lambers Fisher in a discussion about when client and therapist values clash, because goodness knows we may have strong opinions and feelings about what's happening in a news cycle, and it may not always be the same that our clients share. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any comments on that, Dr. Brand, of just that reality of maybe we're not limb limbically activated in that moment and then a client says something and next thing we know our heart's pounding and we can't see straight. The clients are not there to serve us. We're there to serve them. And whoever they are, including their values and so on, you know, that may be very different than ours. 
the person the person comes first and they come last as well you know we're we're we call ourselves healers because we're there to to help other people heal to provide healing that you know which means accessing a person's capacity to heal and i've had clients who've had viewpoints that are drastically different than my own or even in opposition to my own but um uh to find the empathy for the person you know to to be able to really get past that and to have a sense of just what shaped the person to have the kind of views that that they've had um uh so our responsibility you know and um uh the work that we do is a calling okay we didn't go to work on wall street or go to work in an office or and not to denigrate either of those but um this this work is a calling and it, and you you have a, a higher level of dedication uh not that than everybody else because there's many other callings um and part of that calling is a responsibility you know uh, uh a healer is there to provide healing for the other person you know no matter what and you know if you have problems with that it sounds sounds like you need some healing work yourself you know and it's great value for therapists to go for their own therapy for themselves but also for the issues get that get triggered with clients before you and i started recording we were talking about the humanity of the work in therapy can you speak a little bit about how you feel our humanity comes into the room in times like these when there are such traumatic things unfolding and maybe we therapists do feel pressured as we said to do this list of interventions to try to help the person check box check box check box a list of interventions and boxes to be che checked show that we are listening to somebody or something from outside the office and we're not listening to the client I go in and I've been doing this work for more than four decades. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm highly experienced with everything I know. When I sit down with a client, I know, I never know where what's going to come out. I never words, know where it's coming from. I never know where it's going to go, including people who are highly traumatized, including people who are in trauma shock, you know, and, uh, with that approach, Whatever ideas I may have, if I follow them long, long enough, I'll find out I was wrong 100% of the time. So what a checklist do if that's really the case? And, and if you have an idea of what the client needs, you're superimposing it on them as opposed to really being there with them. It's, those are things that therapists use to shield themselves, you know, and I, I understand that, but it really gets in the way of the process. You know, the, the whole idea of you take an extensive history, you form a diagnosis that says disorder at the end, then you set a treatment plan with treatment goals that lead to interventions and so on. Well, that leaves the client out of the process, you know? And by the way, history taking a diagnosis, how often is culture part of what's looked at and assessed, you know? All those questions, they're not in there. What's a cultu cultural diagnosis? You know, doesn't exist. In, in all the research and the evidence-based information, how much is culture looked at with that? Almost, almost non-existently. And you know what? Culture has been around as long as human beings have been around. You know, culture's been around a lot longer than science, and culture is a lot more powerful than science. And science tends to neglect or even denigrate culture. And we all have our own culture, you know? Looking beyond the checkbox of interventions, it sounds like through your lens, the single most important thing we can do to help somebody experiencing traumatic shock is to simply be with them. I'll give you from my faith base. When a person is in mourning, 
my faith, 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 it's the Shiva process, the days after the, the loss. We are instructed, you know, it's in, in our history, in our religion, that what you do is you sit with the person, okay? And you don't talk to the person. You sit with the person and you wait for them to talk to you, okay? And whatever they talk to you about, you talk with them. And if they don't say anything, you don't say anything, okay? The worst thing that happens with someone who's in mourning is if you, is the person comes out of their own anxiety about being with them and saying something stupid, and then they say something stupid, you know, like, oh, they're in a better place or, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're out of their pain or, I mean, you sit with the, it, the this is, this is religion, this is culture. You sit with the person, you sit on boxes and you sit right next to the person. And that's how you help a person to begin to heal and begin to come out of trauma shock. You know, that goes along with losing a loved one. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that perspective. As our time together comes to a close, Dr. Grand, are there any other pieces of information that you would like to share for clinicians who are in these shoes, perhaps feeling lost or feeling like they don't know what to do or how to help when the enormity of what we're discussing comes up? What I say is the only way you can use this effectively with your clients is if it comes from you, okay? If it makes sense to you, if it feels right to you and so on. So don't don't do it my way, you know, learn and figure out how to do it your own way and always be evolving with this, you know. Um, the most important thing that a therapist has or a healer has is themselves, you know, their own presence. It comes out of our neurobiology. It comes out of, out of our evolution. It comes out of our, our ancestry, you know. And the human creative process delivers itself when it delivers itself, it doesn't, you can't like make it happen. So if you're sitting with a person and you don't know what to say, then don't say anything. Wait for something to come to you that feels like it's inspiration. You know, that's, that's where therapists use the creative process. Um, but if you are following the client, whatever comes to you will be inspired by the client and will be attuned to the client and will will have relevance and cogency to the client, you know? Don't, you know, a human, a suffering human being is not a tire to be patched, you know? There's someone to be respected for who they are and with what's going on. It's the most human of processes. So my recommendation to therapists is be, be your human self and be as human as you can be. For the client, for the client, and for yourself. Thank you, Dr. Grand. In this hour together, you've covered so much helpful information, not only discussing some of the neurobiology of trauma, but also some important reminders about what it means to be a therapist and what it means to be human. And sometimes I think that becomes most revealed in moments like this. And, and we're all fallible, and to embrace our fallibility, and to be empathic and supportive to ourselves. For folks who are listening who want to learn more about some of the methods that you've discussed today, you've talked a bit about brain spotting and also the concept, excuse me, the concept of gaze spotting. What's the best way to learn more about these methods? My website, brainspotting.com has information, has, you know, where, where and when trainings are around the country. Uh, I have a book out from Sounds True, Brain Spotting. So that's another good source of information. I have a uh, YouTube video, uh, you know, what is brain spotting? There's lots of ways of finding out information. Fantastic. Again, for our listeners, this is Dr. David Grand, licensed clinical social worker, joining us for this conversation today about trauma shock. As we wind up our time together, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave with our listeners? Trust yourself, okay? The answers lie within, and they, 
our systems deliver it when it's ready. And when it does catch it, and that's part of trusting yourself. Thank you, Dr. Grand. We really appreciate having you today. Thank you, Beth, so much for having me on. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.